Well, good morning, New Life Church. Over the last few weeks, we have been studying the Gospel of Luke, verse by verse, and the title of the series is called The Mission of Jesus. I hope you've been encouraged by this series and to see how the, the Scriptures are sufficient for all of our needs um, and able to minister to us in any circumstances, especially the ones that we find ourselves in. Uh, last week, we examined the conversion of Levi. Uh, Levi, who later became known as Matthew, he was a hated tax collector. However, when Jesus called Levi to follow him, Levi was delighted and he threw a great party for Jesus. But remember, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at Jesus and they complained and at the disciples as well. And they criticized them for, for eating and drinking with the tax collectors and sinners. At this point in the ministry of Jesus, he was obviously facing growing opposition from these Pharisees. And in our text today, we see the Pharisees opposing, criticizing, and questioning Jesus. And of course, how profoundly Jesus responds to the Pharisees after their question they ask about fasting. So let's read together from Luke chapter 5. Our text this morning is from verse 33 to verse 39. Rejoice, there's the title of my message this morning. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the, the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says, the old is good. If your Bible has subheadings in the, in the biblical text, it probably says something about fasting before uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 33. I encourage you to look at your, your Bibles at this time. For example, if you have an ESV, it probably says a question about fasting. Um, if you have the NIV, it probably says Jesus, Jesus questioned about fasting and so on. But in actual fact, the focus of this narrative is not really about fasting. The focus of this narrative is about joy in the presence of the bridegroom. So Satan wants to promote the mistaken idea that, that Christianity is joyless, it is dull, it is a, a grit your teeth and endure it sort of religion. And of course, if people think that way, if he's successful in doing that, that Christianity will not be attractive to people, and they would find some other option or alternative other than God as their source of all joy. Well, God's purpose, remember, is for His creatures to glorify Him. And a joyless Christian or someone who finds his greatest joy in something other than God does not glorify God. We only glorify God when we find true joy in him. 
The Westminster Westminster Catechism asks the question, what is the chief end of man? So children, if you're watching, I'm sure you can remember me asking you that question a number of times. And I can imagine you, you answering that question right now. But what is the purpose of man? Well, the answer to that question is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And since God is absolutely good, truly enjoying Him is the greatest joy possible. So let's see how the Lord teaches this lesson in our text this morning. Our first point is the question. My first point is the question which we see in verse 33. Look at verse 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. So the Pharisees here are questioning Jesus as to why his disciples were were feasting when John the Baptist's disciples and the, the Pharisees were fasting. This was in fact the second question the Pharisees asked Jesus that involved eating and drinking. Remember the first question they, they asked, we saw last week in verse 30, which, which was, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So this second question really presses even further as to why Jesus' disciples are eating and drinking at all. So the question is evident. However, the real issue is not clearly stated, but it is there. It is obviously there in our text. And the issue is, why are your disciples, Jesus, able to enjoy life while we just merely endure it? That's the question here. And note the contrast here. Note the contrast in the, in the attitude of the, the Pharisees with that of the sinners. So the sinners are, are celebrating while the, the Pharisees are, are grumbling. Uh, the sinners are, are happy and the Pharisees are, are sad. The the sinners are enjoying life, and the Pharisees are only enduring life. But look at the answer that Jesus gives. This is my second point. So the answer we see in verse 34 and verse 35. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days days. So Jesus gives a very extensive answer to this question. His first answer deals with the immediate question, the the obvious question, the, the fasting question. Fasting was a sign of repentance. So the Pharisees did not think that they needed to repent of anything. We've seen that clearly already. We saw last week they thought of themselves as spiritually healthy and they had no need of spiritual of a spiritual physician or spiritual cleansing and in contrast to the the pharisees we see in in luke chapter 7 verse 29 to verse 30 this scripture which tells us when all the people heard him and the tax collectors too notice the tax collectors there they declared god just having been baptized with the baptism of john which baptism was that that was the baptism of repentance But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. Notice there, the Pharisees 
rejected this. They rejected this baptism of repentance. They rejected this teaching of repentance. Remember, John the Baptist referred to himself as the friend of the the bridegroom and the Messiah as the bridegroom. And Jesus picks up this imagery here. He picks up and points us, and points the Pharisees to the fact that the friends of the bridegroom do not fast while he is present with them, but they only should be fasting in his absence. So a wedding when the bride and the groom are together is a time for joy and for celebration, isn't it? It's not a time for mourning and a time for, for sorrow, which is one of the reasons for fasting, which we see clearly. But Jesus, the, the bridegroom, is present with his friends and followers, and it's only appropriate for them to rejoice. Remember, John was in prison. His disciples were correctly fasting. It was appropriate for them to be fasting. For Jesus' disciples to fast while, while he was present would have been for them to act inappropriately. There would be a time, and Jesus indicated, when he would, be, when he would not be present, a time when fasting would be proper for his disciples, but not now. The time would come. And this time would probably be during his arrest, after, right through until his, his death, and right through to the time of his, his resurrection. Or perhaps when the Holy Spirit descended um, on the earth. But, but there should not be fasting now. There should not be fasting during the wedding celebration while the bridegroom was present. So there's a very simple but important principle that Jesus is explaining here. And that principle is rejoicing is appropriate for all those who delight in the presence of God. Rejoicing is appropriate for all those who enjoy God's fellowship. Remember in the Psalms, centuries before this, King David wrote in Psalm 16 verse 11, he said, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Remember last week in our text, there were the followers of Jesus, and they were celebrating at the reception which Levi put on for them. They were celebrating Levi's conversion. And they were with Jesus, and there was a reason to celebrate. Before they were, were sinners, but now they had been forgiven. There was no greater joy than that of having fellowship with God. They never had that before. For the Pharisees, of course, who did not know God, being in His presence was not a joyful experience. Being in His presence was agony. Being in His presence wasn't happiness at all. It was, it was agony for them. And those who do not know God often find His presence a horrible agony. The Pharisees found Jesus' presence a, a horrible agony because their faith was in their works. Their faith was not in Jesus. They didn't delight in what Jesus had done for them or what Jesus would be doing for them on the cross of Calvary. Their delight was in their works. Their delight was in their, their rituals. Their delight was in their traditions. That is where they found their comfort. That is where they found their security. Unfortunately, all works-based Religions do that. 
Christianity is not like any other religion. Every other religion is filled with performance. But Christianity is about God. It's about God coming to His people and taking them to be His bride. It's about what God has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. It's not about what we have done. Nothing we can do can earn us favor before God. Christianity is about a relationship with God. It's about a relationship with God. It's not about performance. It's not about works. And that's the reason why there is so much joy. That's the reason why there is delight. We can have a relationship with God because of the love of God that is expressed to us by Jesus, the bridegroom. We who were once enemies of God have been reconciled to Him through the redeeming work of Jesus, His Son. This relationship we have with God is no longer as an enemy, but it is as His children. A relationship that is filled with joy and delight and love. Joy, not sorrow, not sadness, should be the, the dominant characteristic of the Christian. And let me stop here for a moment and make some application that I hope you will find helpful. Now, maybe you are saying in your own mind right now that delight and joy does not describe your Christian experience at the moment. Maybe your dominant feelings during this coronavirus lockdown is not joy and delight in God, but, but sorrow and sadness. And you are probably not alone to feel that. You know, suffering loss is something that all Christians are experiencing in one way or another during this pandemic. Now, right now, amid much other loss and suffering, Christians around the world are suffering the loss of, of weekly face-to-face fellowship with, with one another. And we can't virtually replicate the church. And we cannot help but suffer the loss of, of not enjoying the fellowship that we were designed to enjoy, not being able to assemble regularly as the the author of Hebrews exhorts us to. But despite all of our efforts to encourage the church and to be encouraged, we are feeling this this loss, we are feeling this sadness, we are feeling this, this suffering. Remember, all suffering involves loss. And I hope that you, like me, have been feeling this loss. But this loss is not in vain. It should not be in vain. We need to remember that the Lord is sovereign. And in His providence, He has allowed this pandemic for a reason. I love the quote that Pedro used a couple of weeks ago when he quotes John Piper. When he says that sometimes the Lord is doing 10,000 things which we can't see, but only three that we can. That's what the Lord is doing during this pandemic. The Lord is doing things that we can't see. And perhaps one of those, those things that the Lord is allowing us to learn during this time, and, it, during this time is, is endurance, is, is, is our building up of our character and our faith in Christ. And suffering and sorrow is very much part of the, the Christian life. Suffering is something that, that all Christians are called to experience in one way or another. Now, there are many who teach a, a false prosperity doctrine that says if you become a Christian, you will become healthy, you will become wealthy and prosperous. 
and, and God will remove all your suffering. Well, that's a false doctrine, folks. It's a false teaching. It is not from the Bible. This is a lie. So don't be misled. Don't be deceived. The Scriptures themselves teach that we are to expect suffering. Suffering and sacrifice are, are means that, that God uses to teach us sanctification. But that should not be the end. And the message that we have for us in the Scriptures this morning is that joy is the goal. Joy is the climax. Joy is the ultimate end. Joy is the reward of forgiveness and fellowship with God. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, we have a wonderful, encouraging passage that teach, teaches us this wonderful truth. In verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The scripture here clearly tells us that as Christians, we are to rejoice in our sufferings. I want you to look at that passage again. Please go back to that slide. Let us, let us see that scripture there. Because suffering produces endurance. Look at the rest of the verse. What, is, what does endurance produce? Look at, look at verse 4. Endurance produces character. What does character produce? That's also there in verse 4. Look at the passage. Character produces hope. And how do we know that hope doesn't put us to shame? Look at verse 5. The answer is there in verse 5. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts. So how did God pour His love into our hearts? Look at verse 5. The answer is there. Through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now go back to verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 2. Through Him... We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice. Underline that in your Bibles if you haven't already. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What a wonderful passage. What a wonderful clear passage about suffering in the lives of Christians. Isn't that enough reason to celebrate and throw a, a party like Levi did. Now, even though this coronavirus is, is causing sadness and it's causing anxiety and it's causing sorrow, let's not lose our focus here, folks. Let's not lose the plot. Our greatest problem has been solved. Our greatest enemy has been destroyed. Death has been defeated. The great physician has come to heal us of our greatest spiritual sickness. Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. And we rejoice. We rejoice because ultimately we are going to be with the Lord. 
We have a hope for the future, a hope beyond death, not just for these circumstances we find ourselves in, but a hope beyond this world, a hope beyond death. Remember, suffering and sacrifice are means that God uses to draw us closer to himself. But they are not the end. They are not the end. Joy is the goal. Joy is the climax. Joy is the reward of forgiveness and fellowship with God. A lady in our church recently shared with me her testimony of how she had come to faith in Jesus. And she told me that she was an unbeliever that had considered many other religions to solve her problems and to answer the questions that she had. And then one day she joined a new company in Dubai where she met a work colleague who was a Christian. And let's call her friend Cherry. And Cherry was one of these joyful people that you could not ignore. And finally, one day this lady asked Cherry, why are you always so happy? Why are you always so cheerful? I can't understand how you remain so joyful, especially working in this terrible, stressful environment that we find ourselves in day after day. And you know what Cherry said to her? She said, my joy is because of the Lord Jesus Christ. My relationship with Jesus is the source of all of my joy. Well, Cherry invited this lady to church, and to make a a long story short, this lady and her husband are going to be baptized after the lockdown. The joy of Cherry was attractive. It drew her friends to her beloved Savior. And the joy of the believer should draw others to Christ as well. And I hope that's true for you. We have a hope-filled story to tell a world that is dying without hope. Are we sharing this good news? Are we reflecting the joy of the Lord to those around us? Joy is the goal, folks. People should see it. People should be drawn to it. Look at my third point this morning. The third point is the parable we see in verse 36 to verse 39. And notice the parable. Jesus went on to deal with a, with a deep issue here, a deep issue that's being contrasted between the old and the new. In verse 36, Luke said that Jesus also told them a parable. Look at verse 36. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. So actually, this parable that Jesus is telling is a series of three short little illustrations, three small little parables. The first one is about a garment. The first one is about a garment. The first part, Jesus tells us that no one tears a piece from a new garment and then puts it or attaches it onto an old garment. We see that in the first part of verse 36. Of course, to do so would be foolish for, for a number of reasons. In the first place, tearing a piece of cloth from a new garment obviously would ruin that garment. It would destroy that garment. And the patchwork 
if it was sewn into the old garment, wouldn't match up. There would be two different colors, two different fades of the, the, the garment. And of course, if you, if you washed it, the one fabric would, would shrink or the piece of the garment would, would shrink. And then you'd have a spoiled garment, two different garments totally ruined. And Jesus' point is that the gospel cannot be, cannot be patched into Judaism. Now, Judaism, remember, was a religion of rules and, and laws that people had to keep. And any other religion is just the same. And the principle applies to, to the same religions that are based on works, that are based on works. Jesus' teaching was completely at odds with the Pharisees and their scribes. Now, they viewed themselves as, as righteous, and Jesus preached the necessity of repentance. And they were proud of their, their status. They thought that they were children of Abraham, and automatically they would be ushered into, into heaven just because of their ethnicity. And Jesus proclaimed that they needed to humble themselves, that they needed to repent. And they focused on just the externals. They focused on the ceremonies. They focused on the rituals. They focused on the, the outward observance of the laws. And Jesus did the complete opposite. He focused on the heart. They loved the approval of men. And Jesus said, no, we need to be approved by God. And here is how you do it. Here is how you can be approved by God. If you put your faith in me, repent of your sins. The old garment in Jesus' parable is not talking about the Old Testament. It's not talking about the, the eternal law, which is, which is holy, righteous, and good. And we know it's good because Jesus tells us in Matthew 5 that he came to fulfill the law, not to abolish the law. So it's a good, the Old Testament, the, 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 the law is good. Jesus didn't come to replace it. What Jesus was getting at was the, the ritualistic, legalistic religion that the Jewish people had substituted in place of the law that should have led them to Christ. Their man-made regulations they were observing, and unfortunately their man-made rituals obscured the law that they were supposed to be following. Their religious rituals and traditions stopped them from seeing the law that God had given to them in the first place. No works, righteous system can be patched into the gospel of God's grace. And Jesus builds on this more in the next, in the next parable, in the, in the next illustration, in verse 37 and verse 38. He talks about wineskins. And Jesus said that it would be just as foolish and futile to put new wine into old wineskins because the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and, and the skins will be destroyed. We, we see that in verse 37. Remember, wine was typically stored in containers made of, of animal skins. And as the new fresh wine fermented, a gas would be released and, and the skins would, would start to expand. And if, if anyone was foolish enough to put new wine into the old stretch-out wineskins, the new wine would make those skins burst. 
And the wine would be spilled, and the wine would be lost and wasted. And of course, the skins would be destroyed. So new wine had to be stored in fresh wineskins. We see that in verse 38, which was still um, supple enough to expand during that fermentation process. Like the first parable, this one also highlights the, the uselessness and the impossibility of mixing the gospel of grace with any system of a works righteousness religion. Grace opposes works-based faith. Grace is not compatible with any such type of system. And again, the third parable speaks into that as well. The third parable is a parable about wine. And Jesus describes the, the tragedy of those who reject the gospel of grace and, and cling to their false system of, of works here. And Jesus compared such people to those who are content with the old wine that they have been drinking and have no desire to, to taste the new. And no one, Jesus said, after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. False religion deadens the, the spiritual senses. That's the picture here that Jesus is giving us in this parable. Now, after drinking for a while, the, the person drinking does not care about the, the taste of the wine. He's so intoxicated, he just, he just drinks for, for the feeling, not for, for the taste. It is one of the main ways that the God of this world blinds the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel. We see that in, in 2 Corinthians, Paul tells us. The light of the gospel is the image of God. And he wants to blind us to Christ. And drunkards like their, their brands, don't they? They like the familiar drinks that, that they enjoy. And, and unfortunately, that's the same as unbelievers. You know, they, they cling to those things that they're more comfortable with, that they're more familiar with. They, they love their religious traditions and they have little interest in the new, fresh, saving truth of the gospel. And for those unwilling to leave their false religions and embrace the gospel, there is no hope, unfortunately, for them. There is no hope of salvation. That's what this parable is telling us. And the church's goal is not to make unbelievers comfortable in their, in their false religions or to somehow help them just to add Jesus or assimilate Jesus to their religion or to their, to their systems. Now, the Lord has given us a commission. The Lord has told us that we are to go into the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that the Lord has commanded. And He is with us to the end of the age. We are to teach the truth of the gospel, even if it offends, even if it makes us enemies. We are to show them the new wine. Let me bring this all together now as we conclude by, by way of, a, of an illustration. Now, Kerry and I will celebrate our 
22nd wedding anniversary in December. And I still remember the day we got married very clearly, especially because of all the, the mixed heightened emotions on that day. And one of those elevated emotions I was feeling as I stood at the altar with the rest of my, my best men for 45 minutes was the feeling of fear, was a feeling of terror. There was good reason why Kerry was 45 minutes late for, for our wedding, but I didn't know what that reason was at that time. All I could think about was all the terrible stories that you hear of these runaway brides. So thankfully, Kerry did not run away, and we were able to get married in, in a wonderful ceremony in front of all of our friends and, and loved ones. And over the last 22 years, we have experienced the, the normal ebb and flow of emotions in our marriage. But there is still a deep undercurrent of joy when, when I'm with her. And our marriage has been marked by joy because of the love relationship that I enjoy with my wife. But suppose you saw me looking kind of depressed and, and asked me what the matter was. And, and I said, well, I've got to spend some time with my wife. You know, when we got married, she made me to agree to spend at least 10 hours a week with her. And I've only spent five hours so far this week. So I guess I better do it. I know it's for my, my own good, even though I don't like to do it. I think you would have a good reason to wonder if I had a healthy marriage or a healthy relationship with Kerry. And what I've done, and I've just described a relationship based on legalism, haven't I? There's no joy in that, having to follow a set of rules. And in a marriage that is based on love, there will be self-denial. Of course there will be. Will I obey my marriage vows even when it's tough and I, and I don't feel like it? Of course I will. But it won't be a, a grit your, your teeth and, and take your medicine kind of denial and obedience. It ought to be the same in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Christianity is not a joyless, grit your teeth and endure it sort of religion. You cannot find joy in Christ if you're trying to earn a right standing with Him by simply following a set of, of rituals, rules, or traditions. As a Christian, there will be times of sadness. As a Christian, there will be times of sorrow and even difficulty. You may even find yourself fasting and disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness like we're supposed to do. And you will obey His Word, even though at times it may be, it may be difficult, or at times you may not understand, but your motive will not to be to earn favor with God. Your motive will not be just to impress other people. Your motive will be the joy of knowing and pleasing your bridegroom. Don't let legalism rob you of the joy of an ongoing relationship with your loving bridegroom. He is the source of all pure joy. And God's purpose is for His creatures to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. We only glorify God when we find true joy in Him. If you can be classified as a habitual, joyless personality, then it's time that you examine your heart this morning. If you cannot rejoice in hope of the glory of God, it may be because 
you never truly repented of your, your sins and experienced the forgiveness of them. Maybe you're still trapped in your sins and just going through the motions, just going to church because you have to, just to keep up appearances, but you've never truly repented of your sins. Examine your heart this morning. Do you know Christ? Do you have a relationship with Him? Maybe you've even been trying to find this joy in all the, the wrong things other than, than in God. And you crave this genuine joy that I've been speaking about. Maybe you've seen it in the lives of other believers. Then I urge you today, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 1 verse 9 tells us, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He promises to do that. He promises. In the book of Revelation, the apostle John gives us a picture of the heavenly hosts crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. We see that in Revelation chapter 19. We need to remember, folks, Jesus is coming again. He is the bridegroom who keeps His promises, who loves His bride. And make sure you are ready to meet Jesus. He is the only one who has demonstrated His love for us by giving His life for the bride. He delights in His bride and He loves her with an everlasting love. Do you know this joy? John Piper is famous for saying, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. Are you satisfied in Christ? Or have you turned to the world to find a substitute joy? A joy that doesn't fill. A joy that doesn't give you hope. A joy that is not eternal. A joy that fades away. Well, folks, today the scriptures tell us that we can come to Jesus for this joy. For this everlasting joy. That we can turn from our rituals. We can turn from our traditions. We can turn from our legalism. And we can turn from our sins and embrace the one who promises Hope eternal, not just for this life, but the life beyond. We have a living hope, folks. We have a living, folk, a living hope because of Jesus Christ. Come to him this morning. Will you pray with me? Father God, thank you for your word. Just a timely reminder again, Lord, that our hope is not in the things of this world. We're not to find our joy in the, the temporary things of this world. And this world will fade away. This world is broken. We know this world is cursed with sin. We look around us, Lord, and we see that clearly. This coronavirus has shown us plainly, Lord, that this world is not how it should be, that we are not how we should be. And people are still trying to find answers to their questions in all the wrong places. Lord, thank you that you have given us your truth. Thank you that your truth will set us free. Free from the lies of the devil. 
free from all of these substitutions that will not give us everlasting life. They will not give us everlasting joy. We pray, Lord, please, as believers, as your children, that we would reflect this hope to the world around us, that we will shine this light. We will shine the truth of the gospel to our friends, to our loved ones that are dying, that are without hope. Lord, please, we pray that you would save the lost today, that they would see the joy of knowing Christ, that we would delight in him, that we would bring you glory that you deserve, Lord, and that you would use us as a church. Continue to use us for your glory. Continue to use us to bring people to Christ. We love you, Lord. We pray that you forgive us where we have failed in this. We pray that you forgive us where we have forgotten these wonderful truths. We've lived lives of depression and sorrow and sadness. And even as we're going through these trials, Lord, we pray, keep our eyes on Jesus. Keep our eyes on eternity. Let us remember this is for a season, and you've allowed this for a season to produce Christ-likeness in us so that we can mirror Christ to those around us, so that we can show people Christ who are dying without hope. Lord, do your work amongst us, Lord, for the sake of your great name and for the joy of your people. We ask this prayer in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.